Edgar Allan Poe, born January 19, 1809 in Boston, Mass., and died October 7, 1849 in Baltimore, Maryland. Of course, he was best known for his short stories, particularly his tales of mystery and the macabre. He was one of the country's first writers for short stories and considered to be the inventor of the detective fiction genre, as well as dabbling into the emerging genre of science fiction. One other side note, he was the first well-known American writer to earn a living through writing alone, resulting in a financially difficult life and career. His work appears throughout popular culture and literature, music, films, radio, and television. He was only 40 years old when he died, under what was considered mysterious circumstances, and a definitive cause of his death is not really known because there were so many causes that have been attributed to him, including various diseases, alcoholism, substance abuse, and of course suicide. All of the above said made Edgar Allan Poe's work perfect for Eric Bowersfield's superb radio series, The Black Mass. Bowersfield was a producer, director, adapter, and actor who produced The Black Mass series out of KPFA Radio, Berkeley, California. Poe's work fit the mold of the Black Mass, which featured a horror supernatural anthology that was aired rather irregularly between 1963 to 1970, but they dramatized some 43 stories, ranging in length from only three minutes to up to 42 minutes in length. Listeners will immediately recognize the high production quality of these shows. Sound effects, dialogue pacing, music, and the chilling tales themselves all woven together to make make them really an excellent series. On this track, you will hear two back-to-back short stories by Edgar Allan Poe. The first is entitled The Imp of the Perverse, and the second, Manuscript in a Bottle. This is Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program dedicated to honoring and recognizing the incredible talent from writers, producers, directors, sound effects technicians, to the vocal artists and musicians and the talented engineers who sent the signals through the ether of the atmosphere into the talking boxes known as radios and thereby entertained and informed millions of listeners during the golden age of radio when it was the only form of immediate mass media available. I am your host for Heirloom Radio, John Lovering, thanking and appreciating you, dear listener, for giving your precious time to listen to this podcast. You are awesome, and I thank you. And now, the Black Mass. Welcome to the Black Mass.
we continue our series of works by Edgar Allan Poe with two more of his lesser-known tales. You may wish to make yourselves seaworthy for our production this evening of Manuscript Found in a Bottle. But while you're digesting your Dramamine tablets, our first tale offers a discomfort for which, alas, there is as yet no known prescription. Here is Edgar Allan Poe's story. The Imp of the Perverse. Today I wear these chains and am here. May I explain to you why I am here? May I assign to you something that shall have at least the faint aspect of a cause for my wearing these fetters and for my tenanting this cell of the condemned? I am one of the many uncounted victims of the imp of the perverse. The perverse. In the consideration of the faculties and impulses of the human soul, we have all overlooked it. In the pure arrogance of the reason, we have all overlooked it. We could not have understood in what manner it might be made to further the objects of humanity, either temporal or eternal. If we cannot comprehend God in his visible works, how then in the inconceivable thoughts that call the works into being? Induction upon the basis of what man is always occasionally doing would have brought us to admit as an innate and primitive principle of human action a paradoxical something which we may call perverseness. Through its promptings we act without comprehensible object. We act for the reason that we should not. In theory, no reason can be more unreasonable, but in fact there is none more strong. With certain minds under certain conditions, it becomes absolutely irresistible. The assurance of the wrong or error of any action is often the one unconquerable force which impels us. Nor will this overwhelming tendency to do wrong for the wrong's sake admit of analysis. It is a radical, a primitive impulse. It is elementary. For example, we have a task before us which must be speedily performed. We know that it will be ruinous to make delay. The most important crisis of our life calls trumpet-tongued for immediate energy and action. We glow. We are consumed with eagerness to commence the work. It must, it shall be undertaken today. And yet we put it off until tomorrow. And why? There is no answer except that we feel perverse. Tomorrow arrives. 
and with it a more impatient anxiety to do our duty. But with this very increase of anxiety arrives also a nameless, a positively fearful, because unfathomable craving for delay. This craving gathers strength as the moments fly. The last hour for action is at hand. We tremble with the violence of the conflict before us, of the definite with the indefinite, of the substance with the shadow. But it is the shadow which prevails. We struggle in vain. The clock strikes and is the knell of our welfare. And the ghost that so long overawed us flies. Ah, it disappears, we are free. The old energy returns. Ah, we will labor now. Alas, alas, it is too late. We stand upon the brink of a precipice. We peer into the abyss. We grow sick and dizzy. Our first impulse is to shrink from the danger. Unaccountably, we remain. By slow degrees, our sickness and dizziness and horror become merged in a cloud of unnameable feeling. By gradation still more imperceptible, this cloud assumes shape, as did the vapor from the bottle out of which arose the genie in the Arabian Nights. But our cloud grows, grows into a shape far more terrible, and yet it is but a thought. It is merely the idea of what would be our sensations of a fall from such a height. And this fall, this rushing annihilation, for the one reason that it involves that one most ghastly and loathsome of all the images of death and suffering, for this very cause do we now most vividly desire it. And because our reason violently deters us from the brink, therefore do we most impetuously approach it. There is no passion in nature so demonically impatient as that of him who, shuddering on the edge of a precipice, thus meditates a plunge. To indulge for a moment in any attempted thought is to be inevitably lost. But reflection urges us to forbear. And therefore, therefore, it is, I say, that we cannot, if there be no friendly arm to check us, or if we fail in a sudden effort to prostrate ourselves backwards from the abyss, we plunge and are. Destroyed. Examine these and similar actions. They result solely from the spirit of the perverse. We perpetrate them merely because we feel that we should not. Beyond or behind this, there is no intelligible principle. And indeed, we might deem this perverseness a direct instigation of the arch-fiend. Were it not occasionally known to operate in furtherance of good. I have said thus much that in some measure I may explain to you why I am here. You may have fancied me mad. As it is, you will easily perceive that I am one of the many uncounted victims of the imp of the perverse. It is impossible that any deed could have been wrought with a more thorough deliberation. 
For weeks, for months, I pondered over the means of the murder. I rejected a thousand schemes because their accomplishment involved a chance of detection. At length, in reading some French memoirs, I found an account of a nearly fatal illness through the agency of a candle accidentally poisoned. The idea struck my fancy at once. I knew my victim's habit of reading in bed, and I knew, too, that his apartment was narrow and ill-ventilated. But I need not vex you with impertinent details. I need not describe the easy artifices by which I substituted in his bedroom candlestick a wax light of my own making for the one which I found there. The next morning, he was discovered dead in his bed. And the coroner's verdict was death by the visitation of God. Having inherited his estate, all went well with me for years. The idea of detection never once entered my brain. Of the remains of the fatal taper I had myself carefully disposed. I had left no shadow of a clue by which it would be possible to convict or even to suspect me of the crime. It is inconceivable how rich a sentiment of satisfaction arose in my bosom as I reflected upon my absolute security. For a long period of time I was accustomed to revel in this sentiment. It afforded me more real delight than all the mere worldly advantages accruing from my sin. But there arrived at length an epoch from which the pleasurable feeling grew by scarcely perceptible gradations into a haunting and harassing thought. It harassed because it haunted. I could scarcely get rid of it for an instant. I would perpetually catch myself pondering upon my security and repeating, I am safe, 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 yes, yes, safe, safe, safe. If I be not fool enough to make open confession, an icy chill crept to my heart, I had had some experience in these fits of perversity, and in no instance had I successfully resisted their attacks. And now, might I possibly be fool enough to confess the murder? My own casual self-suggestion now confronted me as if the very ghost of him whom I had murdered and beckoned me on to death. At first I made an effort to shake off this nightmare of the soul. I walked vigorously, faster, uh, still faster. Uh, uh, at length I ran. I felt a maddening desire to shriek aloud. Every succeeding wave of thought overwhelmed me with a new terror. For alas, I well, too well understood that to think, to think, in my situation was to be lost. Uh, uh, I still quickened my pace. I bounded like a madman through the crowded thoroughfares. Uh, uh, at length the populace took the alarm and pursued me. I felt then the consummation of my fate. Could I have torn out my tongue, I would have done it. But a rough voice resounded in my ears. A rougher grasp seized me by the shoulders. I turned. I gasped for breath. For a moment I experienced all the pangs of suffocation. I became blind, deaf, giddy. And then some invisible fiend, the imp, struck me with his broad palm upon the back, and the long imprisoned secret burst forth from my soul.
They say that I spoke with a distinct enunciation, but with marked emphasis and passionate hurry, as if in dread of interruption before concluding the brief but pregnant sentences that consigned me to the hangman and to hell. But why shall I say more? Today I wear these chains and am here. Tomorrow I shall be fetterless. But where? That was... The Imp of the Perverse by Edgar Allan Poe Now our second tale, to which Poe added a brief note at the end, which reads as follows. The manuscript found in a bottle was originally published in 1831 and it was not until many years afterwards that I became acquainted with the maps of Mercator, in which the ocean is represented as rushing by four mouths into the polar gulf, to be absorbed into the bowels of the earth, the pole itself being represented by a black rock towering to a prodigious height. Here now is Edgar Allan Poe's story, manuscript, found in a bottle. Of my country and of my family, I have little to say. Ill usage and length of years have driven me from the one and estranged me from the other. Hereditary wealth afforded me a life spent mainly in foreign travel, terminated, finally, by the incredible events here related. I had set out from the port of Batavia on a voyage to the archipelago islands, and I went as passenger, having no other inducement than a kind of nervous restlessness which haunted me as a fiend. We got underway with a mere breath of wind and for many days stood along the eastern coast of Java. One evening, leaning against the taffrail, I observed a very singular isolated cloud to the northwest. At sunset it spread, girting the horizon like a long line of low beach. My notice was soon after attracted by the dusky red appearance of the moon and the very peculiar character of the sea. The water seemed more than usually transparent. The air became intolerably hot and as night came on, Every breath of wind died away. A 
more entire calm it is impossible to conceive. The flame of a candle burned upon the poop without the least perceptible motion. The crew, consisting principally of Malays, stretched themselves deliberately upon the deck. I went below, not without a full presentment of evil. My uneasiness, however, prevented me from sleeping, and about midnight I decided to go up upon deck. As I placed my foot upon the upper step of the companion ladder, I found the ship quivering, quivering to its very centre, and in the next instant a wilderness of foam hurled us upon our beam ends and rushing over us fore and aft swept the entire deck from stem to stern. The extreme fury of the blast proved the salvation of the ship. She rose after a minute heavily from the sea and staggering a while beneath the immense pressure of the tempest finally righted. By what miracle I, I escaped destruction it is impossible to say. Stunned by the shock of the water, I found myself upon recovery, uh, jammed in between the stern post and the rudder. Uh, uh, I, I regained my feet. Uh, it seemed we were among breakers so terrible. Beyond the wildest imagination was the whirlpool of, of mountainous and foaming ocean within which we were engulfed. It was the old Swede. Uh, he came reeling aft. Gone, all gone. All on deck, with the exception of ourselves, had been swept overboard. And those below must have perished while they slept. The cabins were deluged with water. The main fury of the blast had already blown over, and we apprehended little danger from the violence of the wind. For five entire days and nights, during which our only subsistence was a small quantity of jaggery procured with great difficulty from the forecastle. For five entire days and nights, the hulk flew at a rate defying computation before rapidly succeeding floors of the wind. Uh, our course for the first four days was southeast by south. Uh, on the fifth day, the cold became extreme. The sun arose with a, a sickly yellow luster and clambered a very few degrees above the horizon emitting no decisive light. There were no clouds apparent, yet the wind was upon the increase and blew with a fitful and unsteady fury. About, about noon, our attention was again arrested by the appearance of the sun. Well, son, 
light all gone too. It gave out no light, properly so called, but a dull and sullen glow, without reflection, as if its rays were polarized. And just before sinking, its central powers suddenly went out, as if hurriedly extinguished by some unaccountable power. It was a dim, silver-like rim alone as it rushed down the unfathomable sea. Gone, gone down the sea. We waited in vain for the arrival of the sixth day. That day to me has not yet arrived. To the Swede, it never did arrive. Thenceforward we were enshrouded in pitchy darkness, so that we could not have seen an object twenty paces from the ship. Eternal night continued to envelop us. All around us were horror. Horror and thick gloom. A black, sweltering desert of ebony. Superstitious terror crept by degrees into the spirit of the old Swede. We had no means of calculating time. We were aware of having made far to the south. Every mountainous billow hurried to overwhelm us. The swell surpassed anything I, I had imagined possible. The swelling of the black, stupendous seas became more dismally appalling. At, at times we, we gasped for breath at an elevation beyond the albatross. At times became dizzy with the velocity of our descent into some watery hell. We were at the bottom of one of these abysses when... Oh! Oh, see! See! Almighty God, see! A, a dull, sullen glare of red light streamed down the sides of the vast chasm where we lay. At a terrific height above us, and on the very verge of the precipitous descent, hovered a gigantic ship. Her huge hull was of a deep, dingy black, and she bore up under a press of sail in the very teeth of that supernatural sea. For a moment of intense terror, she paused upon the giddy pinnacle as if in contemplation of our own sublimity. Then, then trembled and tottered and came down! Ah! Uh, uh, the, the, the shock of the descending mass had struck us. Ah, ah. I had been hurled here, here upon the rigging of the stranger. Uh, uh, and, and finally, dizzy, in a dream, I was on the deck. Uh, I staggered to the main hatchway, and then and secreted myself in the hold. Why, I can hardly tell. An indefinite sense of awe had taken hold of my mind. Uh, 
for which I have no name has taken possession of my soul. A sensation which will admit of no analysis, to which the lessons of bygone time are inadequate, and for which I fear futurity will offer me no key. To a mind constituted like my own, the latter consideration is an evil. I shall never, I shall never be satisfied with regard to the nature of my conceptions. Yet, yet is it not wonderful that these conceptions are indefinite, since they have their origin in sources so utterly novel. A new sense, a new entity is added to my soul. It is long since I first trod the decks of this terrible ship. Incomprehensible men, wrapped up in meditations of a kind which I cannot divine, they pass me by unnoticed. Concealment is utter folly on my part, for the people will not see. Just now I, I passed directly before the eyes of the mate. I ventured into the captain's own private cabin, and took thence the materials with which I write. I shall from time to time continue this journal. It is true that I may not find an opportunity of transmitting it to the world, but I will not fail to make the endeavor. At the last moment, I will enclose the manuscript in a bottle and cast it within the sea. An incident occurred. I had thrown myself down upon the deck and while musing upon the singularity of my fate, I unwittingly daubed with a tar brush the edges of a neatly folded studding sail which lay near me. Now the sail is rigged, and I look up and see the thoughtless touches of the brush spread out in the wind, spelling the word discovery. I have made observations upon the structure of the ship. What she is, I fear it is impossible to say. A huge size and overgrown suits of canvas. Simple bow, antiquated stern. There flashes across my mind a sensation of familiar things, indistinct shadows of recollection. There is a peculiar character about the wood which strikes me as rendering it unfit for the purpose to which it has been applied. I mean its extreme porousness. It would have every characteristic of Spanish oak if Spanish oak were distended by any unnatural means. A curious apothem comes full upon my recollection. It is as sure as as sure as there is a sea where the ship itself will grow in bulk 
like the living body of the seamen. I stood among a group of the crew. They paid me no manner of attention. They all bore about them the marks of a hoary old age. Their knees trembled, their shoulders bent. Their shriveled skins rattled in the wind. Their eyes glistened with the room of years. Around them, on every part of the deck, lay mathematical instruments of the most quaint and obsolete construction. I see the captain face to face in his own cabin, and I regard him with a feeling of irrepressible reverence and awe and wonder. The singularity of the expression which reigns upon the face, the intense, the thrilling evidence of old age, so utter, so extreme. His gray hairs are records of the past. His grayer eyes are sibyls of the future. His head was bowed down upon his hands, and it poured with a fiery, unquiet eye over a paper which I took to be a commission. He murmured to himself, and his voice seemed to reach my ears from a great distance. The ship continues her course due south, and the colossal waters rear their heads above us like demons of the deep, but like demons forbidden to destroy. All in the immediate vicinity of the ship is the blackness of eternal night and a chaos of foamless water. But now, about a league on either side of us may be seen, indistinctly and at intervals, stupendous ramparts of ice ice towering away into the desolate sky and looking like the walls of the universe. The ship proves to be within the influence of some strong current or impetuous undertow, which, now howling and shrieking by the white ice, thunders on to the southward with a velocity like the headlong dashing of a cataract. Conceive the horror of my sensations is utterly impossible. Yet a curiosity to penetrate the mysteries of these awful regions predominates even over my despair and will reconcile me to the most hideous aspect of death. It is evident that we are hurrying onward to some exciting knowledge, some never-to-be-imparted secret whose attainment is destruction. Uh, 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 the, the ship is at times lifted bodily from out of the sea. Uh, horror upon horror! The ice opens suddenly to the right and to the left, and we are whirling dizzily in immense concentric circles round and round the borders of a gigantic amphitheater the summit of whose walls is lost in the darkness and the distance. 
But little time will be left to me to ponder upon my destiny. The circles rapidly grow small, smaller and smaller. We are plunging madly within the grasp of the whirlpool. The ship is quivering, oh God, and going down, going down. That was Manuscript Found in a Bottle by Edgar Allan Poe. The technical production for this evening's broadcast was by John Whiting. The Imp of the Perverse and Manuscript Found in a Bottle were adapted and performed for you by your host of the Black Mass, Eric Bowersfeld. And now... It's time to break up our little chain of empathy for this evening. We will meet again real soon around this hour. Join us at that time. Good night. Black Mass series was conceived by Jack Nessel and recorded in the studios of KPFA in Berkeley.